a subject that should be near and dear to everyone's heart because every last person in here is going to go through it, and that it's waging spiritual war. There's a turning point here in this second epistle that Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and it behooves us to take a look back, really all the way back to the first letter. This was a church that was filled with problems. This was a church that was divided. This was a church that had a propensity to be selfish and self-centered. This was a church that failed to recognize spiritual leadership over them. This was a church that, whether they saw it or not, was actually at war. And here's the problem when we use the term war, because we in our minds immediately begin to think that when there's a war, it has to be people against people. And now I want to be really clear, you may be fighting with people, but you're not fighting against people. You're fighting against principalities, powers, and the rulers of the darkness of this age. The book of Ephesians actually tells us that we have a threefold enemy, that that enemy is the world. And when we use that term, it means the system that is controlled and governed to a certain extent because God has allowed it for a period of time called the times of the Gentiles. God has allowed the enemy to control much of what goes on in the world. And you certainly see that in television, you see that in movies, you see that in lifestyle choices, you see that everywhere, that this world is to some degree anti-God. And in that sense, it is against God. It's part of that principality powers and it is governed by the rulers of the darkness of this age. There is a second enemy, that's a real enemy, that's their boss, and that would be the devil. He is real, he's not the forked horn dude in the spandex suit. Uh, He more than likely looks like somebody, if you were to meet him on the street, probably going to be driving a really nice car, going to have an Armani suit and a pocket full of cash, and he's going to be all tapped into this world system because he's actually kind of pulling the strings. And you also have the worst enemy of all, and that, to me, is my own flesh. Your own flesh, our own unredeemedness that still resides within each of us, even as believers. Anybody figured out as a Christian that you still struggle with your flesh? That you make bad decisions, you cave into things that you shouldn't, you even know better, and in a moment of that fleshly carnality or weakness... You actually kind of help the enemy out. So we fight a threefold enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the governing rulership of that is principalities, powers, and the rulers of the darkness of this age. So demonic hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Behind the scenes, there is actually a war going on. Here's the problem. It almost always involves other people. Almost always. Because those people can be affected by the world. Those people can be affected by the devil or his minions, demons, and the like. And those people can be affected by following after their flesh. And so we now see the Apostle Paul begin to engage in war. And this turning point, here as we get to chapter 10, is so abrupt that it's actually caused... Bible exposers, and very much so cause people who are what we would call scholars of Near Eastern language or those that would actually take the original manuscripts and translate them and say, well, maybe this is actually a third letter because it is so different than what he has previously said. But here's the reason why. When you look at this passage, what really is going on is the reality of the battle is coming to a head. Paul's been saying, here's the things you need to do. Here's the way you ought to be living. These are the deficiencies that you have. And so the enemy here at the end, you can kind of see, cranks up the heat. Because if one could take out the apostle Paul, then every single thing he said in the first letter and everything he said up to now in this second letter becomes somewhat of a moot point. Because if Paul gets taken out, then everybody can say, well, you know, he wasn't really of God anyway. And so Paul is now going to fight 
this spiritual battle. We're going to take the first six verses tonight. We'll pick up uh, with the remainder of the chapter next time. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the power of your word to instruct, transform, change, cause us to know things that we would not otherwise know, that it is powerful. As the writer of Hebrews said, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It can divide between joint and marrow. It is mighty unto the tearing down of the strongholds of the wicked one. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would instruct us as your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 1 through 6 here in 2 Corinthians 10. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And the first thing that we're going to see is what everyone in this room need remember whenever you're engaged in warfare. The first place you must start is being like Christ. The first place in your marriage you need to start when there's a disagreement is by being like Christ. The first place as a parent you must go is by being like Christ. In the workplace, being like Christ. In everything, every way, every single battle you get into, the first place you must go is be like Jesus. You have to think like Jesus, talk like Jesus, act like Jesus. You must look for conciliation before you look for warfare. You need to look to try and solve the issue without the harmful battle effects, if you possibly can. As much as it lies with you, Scripture says, live at peace with all men. And so Paul says, I am pleading with you by the meekness of and gentleness of Christ, who in presence, in other words, in this very moment, I am lowly among you. He says, look, I I haven't come tooting my own horn. I haven't come uh, bloviating and acting that I am super spiritual. I've come lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. It's not like I have two personalities. It's not like when I'm with you, I'm humble and meek, And when I'm absent, I'm giving you a hard time. Uh, I pray that the character of Christ can be found in me always and in all things. And this is so true with us. How many of you, and, and I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but think about it for a moment, can honestly look back a period of time in your life or maybe a circumstance in your life where you have known to do the right thing, you have even received the words to say the right thing, But in the face of certain people, you have failed to do exactly that. Sometimes it's family. Sometimes it's friends. Sometimes it's the workplace. You know what to say. You know how to say it. But when you're with certain people, you actually change who you are. People may or may not be able to actually tell whether you're a child of God or not. Paul is saying, look, I am the same when I'm with you and when I'm not. There is no difference in the way I would speak to you. There's no difference in my tone. Uh, I want to be like Christ all the time. Verse 2, but I beg you that when I am present, that I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. He's saying, look, I don't want to be overly bold with you. I don't want to have to beat you up. Can I tell you at times, hard things need to be said. But hard things can be said and should be said, especially initially in a way that's gentle and meek. But make no mistake about it, the Apostle Paul is saying, if you make me turn on the heat, I can turn on the heat. If you want to see exactly how bold I can get, uh, you're going to get an opportunity to do that. Don't make the mistake of thinking that this meekness that you now see is weakness. Do you understand the difference between those two words? Meekness is strength under power. Weakness is caving in to the lowest possible denominators 
Weakness is you surrendering. Meekness is keeping the power completely restrained by the Holy Spirit so that ultimately God can work in the situation. And so Paul says, do not make the mistake of confusing these two things. For though we walk in the flesh, and he's not saying, I walk in the flesh. He's making a statement that his body is just like your body, just as Jeremiah said about his, I am a man of like passion. In other words, we have a fleshly body. We are part flesh, amen? We still have things that we struggle with. We still have opportunity to uh, lose our temper. We still have the opportunity to think wrongly. Anybody ever thought wrongly about something only to learn that you were wrong? <laughs> Amen? Yeah. If you have children, that's like, that should be on your wall. I think wrongly about things and then I figure out I'm wrong. That's kind of the history of mankind, isn't it? That would also be why we repent. Because we thought wrongly about something, we actually acted wrongly, then we figure out we were wrong, and then we turn around and go the other way. That's actually the classic definition of repentance. It's to turn and go the other way. It's to recognize the fact that I've been wrong. And so Paul is saying to us, look, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. In other words, you being flesh, and me being flesh, and we're walking in the flesh We're going to probably at some point in time have some things that need to be resolved. But when those things need to be resolved, we need to remember that behind your raised tone or my raised tone, behind the problem that you have with that circumstance or situation, behind the things that you say, there is a world system, there is a real devil, and there are Satan's minions and your flesh reacting together to heighten the tension that those tensions largely exist because we still walk in our flesh. I still have that capacity. Now, I don't like to personally give too much credit to that, neither should you, but the fact of the matter is you're flesh, and you do have limited capacity while you're still on this earth, not completely, in essence, glorified and not completely sanctified while you're still in that process of sanctification, some of you are going to be a bit more fleshly than others. There are going to be times when you're going to be a bit more fleshly. Anybody recognize that in your life? That you have those moments of weakness or maybe you have subjects about which you are a little weaker, more prone to responding in the flesh old wounds, places where you've been hurt. Sometimes you keep the flesh very close to the surface there. And so the the apostle Paul is saying, look, don't mistake the fact that I am still flesh. I still have the capacity to not be 100% who I should be, and so do you. And so this should bring us a couple of things in our lives. Number one, it should give me great patience with you because I need you to have great patience with me. It should cause me to be meek towards you because I want you to restrain yourself with me. It should cause me to take a lower position rather than to exalt myself because if we keep trying to exalt ourselves above one another, who do you think is going to win that? Ultimately, we're both going to lose because you can't get both of us to the top of the same pile. And so... Paul is making a general statement here. He's reminding us of exactly how tough this is. And though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. And then he says, four, verse four, the weapons of our warfare are not sarcos. They're not carnal. They're not fleshly. The weapons we fight with is not my anger. That's part of my flesh. It's not my bitterness. That's part of my flesh. It's not my retribution. That's part of my flesh. It's not snide remarks. That's part of my flesh. It's not an elevated voice. It's not pain. That's part of my flesh. My weapons are not my flesh. As a believer, those fleshly weapons are supposed to have died. When I gave my life to Christ, my life is now hidden in him, I am dead to my flesh, my old man is dead and dying, 
He, he's being put away day by day. I'm growing into the image of Christ. So the fleshly tools that I used to fight with, you see, because I used to fight with fighting. I used to fight with anger. I used to fight with hate. I used to fight with bitterness. I used to fight with retribution. I used to fight with intellect and logic. I used to fight with fleshly things. And now that I am a believer and I want to be like Jesus, I have to put the weapons of the flesh away and I have to pick up the weapons that are going to work in the spiritual realm. Because in the spiritual realm, weapons of the flesh don't work. You can't fight a spiritual battle with a fleshly weapon. You have to fight a spiritual battle with a spiritual weapon. So he says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not carne. They're not carnal. But mighty in God. They're not mighty in Jeff. They're not mighty in you. They're not mighty in, in books. They're not mighty in the church. They're not mighty in the program. They're mighty in God. The spiritual weapons that we are to use to battle spiritual war, to fight, are mighty only in the Lord. They're mighty in God. For the pulling down of strongholds, those places where the enemy has a grip. Anybody seen anyone gripped by bitterness? Anybody seen someone gripped by hate? Seen somebody gripped by the pain of their past or someone else's past or shame or guilt? Those things can become strongholds in a Christian's life. They can become strongholds in people's lives with whom you actually share commonality as brothers and sisters in Christ. You can have brothers and sisters in Christ who actually allow strongholds to be erected in their life, but these weapons are mighty to tear down those strongholds. The pain that most of us have experienced in our lives can really only effectively be dealt with by the weapons of our warfare. There are tools that can help us cope. There are things that can be done. That's the place of counselors. That's the place sometimes of psychologists and psychiatrists to help us get to those places where we can identify what's wrong. But as a believer, the actual weapons are God's weapons. Because if I'm going to fight anger, I have to do it with peace. I can't fight anger with anger. If I try and out-anger somebody, then somebody dies. Amen? Jesus said, if you hate your brother in your heart, you have murdered him. You, you see, you can't fight flesh with flesh. You have to fight flesh with spirit. Because the spirit of God that is in you is the same spirit there was a creative force behind this entire universe. It's powerful. It is mighty. It can rip down any fortress that is in anyone's life if we'll use the right weapons. Notice what is next said, and this is really important, and we'll finish up with these thoughts at the end. Casting down arguments... Casting down the argument, bringing the argument back down to where it, it can now be dealt with. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. You see, the knowledge of God is what comes against the, the things of this world. That's why faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When I know what God thinks, when I know what God says, when I know what God wants then I can battle against what he doesn't want. And that is exactly why we see these opposite lists in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, where you have on one side, you have the works of the flesh. 
anger, bitterness, hatred, wrath, those kinds of things. And on the other side, the works of the Spirit, gentleness, meekness, and self-control. You understand what I'm saying? On one hand, you have the flesh. On the other hand, you have the Spirit. And what God is saying is that these spiritual weapons are able to tear down the fleshly weapons. The fortresses that have been built up in your life where you have allowed anger and bitterness and hate and vanity and those things which can oppress you and drive you nearly crazy. If you want those things dealt with in your life, it's not going to be by taking more drugs. It's not going to be by an additional relationship which has already failed to do what it's promised. It is not going to be by you getting more of what you already have because it may well be what you have has not been brought under the subjection as Paul has just finished this whole two-chapter treatise on, on what we do with our resources. What he's saying is if you want to be delivered from this fight, from this battle, you have to fight with the right weapons. bringing every thought into captivity into the obedience of Christ. And here it comes. Also being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. In other words, ultimately, my defense is the Lord. My defense is the Lord. When I do things God's way, the results are left to him. I am not responsible for the results. I'm responsible for the obedience to the things that he's given me to do. I'm responsible to act, to say, to think the way he's asked me to ask and speak and think. So when I ask him, I need to ask him for spiritual answers. When I speak for him, I need to speak with spiritual answers, spiritual tone. When I act on those things, when I do, I need to act in the spirit. You see the The whole goal here is if you want to win a spiritual battle, you have to fight with spiritual weapons towards the desired end, which is to glorify God. Amen? And so as Paul opens up this this initial volley, Paul is sharing with us a very personal battle that he himself is in. And unfortunately, spiritual war very often is, is actually waged at least with uh, people. And those people can be unloving and ungodly and unkind. Uh, they can be uncaring and unrelenting. You can put an un almost in front of anything that's good, and people can be that way. Any, anybody experience that? Anybody ever had somebody unloving in your life? Does that hurt? It hurts, doesn't it? And, and so you think for a moment that person maybe doesn't love you, but maybe their response is from their flesh. The reason they're being unloving, maybe they had a miserable childhood and they don't even know how to love you. So you think that it is them, but what really is happening is behind the scenes, the devil and his minions, this world and its system, and your flesh are concocted this poison called hatred, called anger, called bitterness. And that is raging in the sphere of your life. And as that rages, you begin to think that person is responsible for it. When really what's happening is they have caved in and their flesh is certainly engaged in part of it. But behind the scenes, the devil's going, yeah, hate on them some more. The world is saying, well, you deserve to hate them. After all, I mean, look at what's happened. And then your flesh goes, yeah, well, I feel better. At least I got this off my chest. When in fact what God is saying is, why don't you start with some conciliation? Why don't you try being meek and humble? Why don't you recognize that that person may actually not even understand the level of pain which they have caused in your life? Do you think anybody while Jesus was on this earth actually knew what he was going through? I personally don't think there's a soul that will ever be able to fully understand what Jesus went through on the cross. And yet he went through it in meekness and humility. He allowed the repeated abuse. He was tortured. He was castigated. He, he had things said to, said to him that, that most of us would not actually say to our actual enemies. And yet how did he respond? with the character that you would expect from the creator towards the creation, amen? 
He's the sustainer of the universe. He's the one whom angels worshiped. And, and that's the way we're supposed to respond to other people. I'm supposed to respond with meekness. I'm supposed to act like I am a lover of these people who are giving me a massive migraine headache. Look, let me be, let me be very clear here. I am not saying that people aren't the cause of your headache. But I am saying in the same breath that behind them speaking those words which gave you the headache, there is a system, there is a real devil, and there is their own flesh which is still in the process of being sanctified and redeemed. Even though the price has been paid, the flesh is still weak. Amen? And so they say things that hurt. They do things that hurt. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is going through. He's going to attempt first to disarm them. He, he's not going to just beat them up with, he's not going to, you know, it's just like pull out a barrage of Bible studies and just, you know, rapid fire pound them into the ground. He's going to approach it with meekness and humility. And we think of meekness, unfortunately, as I said, meekness in our world implies timidity or, or general weakness. But it really isn't that in, in the Lord because Jesus, when he was on this earth, though he was kind beyond measure, he was still fully God, amen? When he, when he was on the cross, and, and I want you to fully understand this, when he was on the cross and people were shouting insults at him, he could have simply looked at them and turned them into a pile of ash. He's holy God. But he so restrained that power that while they're hurling insults at him, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's meekness. If you want to know what meekness is, that is the description of it. Fully God, and yet so fully under control is that power that what Christ thought about those accusing him was, I love you. I love you. Have you ever thought about how many people were transformed by what happened at the cross? Those that saw the events. Those that saw Jesus in Pilate's courtyard. Those that saw him walk down the road towards Calvary. As he headed towards Golgotha, he, he has had the flesh stripped off of his body by being beaten until he's nearly dead. He has a crown of thorns from a dom tree, a type of acacia that more than likely were actually buried into his skull. He's been beaten with a rod He's been mocked and a robe put on him and then stripped off of him to mock him as if he were king, which he actually was. And yet the whole time, completely under control, not, you know what, that's enough. No more. That last lash, forget it. You hit me again, I'm killing every last one of you. And I want you to think of this in your mind. Now, as, as crazy as that sounds, because we know why Christ came, he was never under compulsion to restrain himself. His restraint was his meekness. God didn't say, you can't touch him, son. God the Father didn't say, well, you, you know, do whatever you want. If you get tired of it, just fry them all. We'll start over. No, Jesus voluntarily allowed himself to endure what no human being could endure because he loves us that much. That's the type of meekness we're supposed to have towards each other. We are also, as it says here, supposed to be gentle. That's one thing to have an internal attitude of heart. That would be the meekness restraining it by saying, you know what, I refuse to do that. But the gentleness is the actual carrying it out. 
sweet reasonableness is a way to understand it. It's like, given who I am and given who you are, the sweet, reasonable thing to do, the gentle thing to do, is for me to not respond to you the way you deserve, but to give you mercy and to give you grace and to allow myself even to be afflicted so that you could be saved. Is that not what Jesus did for us? Remember, this begins with the character of Christ. It ends with the character of Christ. And all along the way, it's us waging battle in the character of Christ. It's not us trying to figure out how to win. It's us figuring out the best way to give ourselves to others. Now, some of you are going, I'm not doing that. I think most of us have had periods of time where we would think that that's probably the right answer. No, and it it falls into line with my analogy of Jesus at the cross. I'm sure there was a point in time, in fact, we know Jesus prayed in the garden before he went to the cross, if there's any way, take this cup. Father, please, take this cup from me. It's not like Jesus is going, praise the Lord, I get to be stripped of my flesh today. No, he he didn't pray that at all. He did not want to, to go through that pain. And he certainly did not want to be crushed and bruised and the chastisement for our peace pressed upon him. It's not like he was relishing in that, but he so loved us that in total meekness and gentleness, he allowed himself to be the object of affliction in order that we might be one to him. It is in fact, as David said, that it is the kindness of God that has drawn men to repentance. It's actually seeing Jesus' response to pain, anguish, suffering, and yes, even death that tells us exactly how much he loves us. You see, when I think of what Jesus did for me, how can I not love him? How can I not cry out to him and say, God, forgive me. You love me this much that you sent Jesus into this world to die in my place on Calvary's cross. What am I doing fighting with the weapons of flesh? And so Paul begins with conciliation, with meekness, with gentleness, with self-control, putting himself low. It says base here. In other words, he's acknowledging, look, You're saying I'm base in a negative way. I'm saying I'm base in a positive way. I I, I gladly will take the the lower seat. I'll gladly be humble. And so we need to be very careful that we don't, don't mistake this meekness for weakness. Because just like Jesus, Jesus was not a pushover. And I want to draw your attention to a handful of things, both in Paul's life and in Jesus' life. No matter what the odds were in Paul's life, and when you read Acts chapter 13 to 16, and, and, and even parts of 17, you, you can see that Paul actually went back to cities where he was stoned, beaten, and shipwrecked. After he'd been stoned, beaten, and shipwrecked, he went back to those same cities to preach the gospel. He didn't go off. <laughs> I'm done. Forget it. Not talking to you guys anymore. That's the same love that Jesus had. The same love that caused Jesus to turn over the money changers' tables is the love that put him on the cross. So there is a place in time for us to even respond with some stringent measures. Paul was a brave missionary. Paul wasn't just, you know, this kind of guy that you was a pushover. He was absolutely fearless, but he fought the right way. And so when you're having that problem in your marriage, start to draw from this thinking and remember, you're not actually fighting your husband or your wife. You're fighting against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, heavenly hosts of wickedness. It is not just simply a battle between you and your spouse. The words will be exchanged between the two of you, 
but the fight is in the heavenly realms. That's where it's going to actually be waged and that's where it's going to be won. That is where it will be waged and that is where it will be won or lost. Very often, the enemy doesn't have to actually defeat us. He just has to get get us to give up. Amen? Why do I say that? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. So if he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world, how many battles should you win? 100%. Amen? Amen? You, you have the power to be victorious in every single situation. Our problem is, is we don't fight with the right weapons and we give up. We stop before the Lord's done. We, we surrender to the enemy. The enemy hasn't actually defeated us. We just got tired of the fight. And while I'm saying this, I, I mean no disrespect to anyone, nor do I mean to condemn anyone. I'm simply reminding you who you are in Christ Jesus. He who is in you is mightier than he who is in this world. And he who is in you wills to do his good pleasure, Scripture says. So God wants to win the battle. The question is, will you fight it the right way? Will you do what he wants? Will you fight the right way? And so Paul basically says, look, I'm, I'm begging you. I don't want to fight. My back's still sore from all the beatings I've taken. But don't mistake where I'm going here. Paul had assurance that he knew he was on the winning side. And you can have that same assurance. And here's how. When you're acting fully in concert with God's word. When you are acting fully in concert with God's will. When you are acting fully in concert with God's ways, when you are acting fully in concert with God, you have the victory because God has purposed it to be so. But the moment you step outside of that, let me show you how that works. You start giving counsel that is antithetical to the plain teaching of Scripture. Here's how that works. Let's say you're in a situation where there's been a brokenness in your marriage. And you say, well, I'm just leaving him. Can I tell you, your Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say if, if your husband or your wife has made a mistake that you should leave them. God has made a provision for that, but it does not say you should leave them. So you're making a choice to surrender. God's will is that you allow him to heal that situation. God's will is that you move on. God's will is that you forgive. God's will is you let him work. But you can surrender. You can give up. Now it may be that your spouse is completely unwilling. And there is nothing you can do about that. But from your side, you should be willing to go all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. All the way to what Jesus did, which is death to you for the benefit of others. So we can give up and give in. Or we can say, Lord, strengthen me. Keep these things in me under control and let your meekness not be mistaken for weakness and let your power be made manifest in the way that I handle myself in this situation. Meekness and gentleness of Jesus didn't hinder him from pouring out curses on his enemies, from flipping the money changer's table, or even handing his own beloved people over to destruction. Hear me well. Matthew 24, Jesus said there's not going to be a stone left one on top of another. I would that these my children would come unto me, but they will not. He says, they're going to go. They're going to go into dispersion. They're going to be scattered. So never mistake the meekness of Jesus for weakness. Because he will do what is necessary to get our attention. God chastens those whom he loves, amen? And if he does not chasten you, the book of Hebrews says, then he does not love you. So he knows how to put a good whooping He knows how to apply the rod of knowledge to the seat of knowledge, or the rod of correction to the seat of knowledge, right? 
He, 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 can, he can make you change your attitude by, by giving you a little extra to think about. But he doesn't want to do that. But make no mistake, it's still in his arsenal. And so to that end, conciliation now gives way to confrontation. Paul now says, look, I, I, I may be walking in a body of flesh, but don't make, don't make the mistake of thinking I'm going to try and war in the flesh. Paul's body of flesh was half beaten to death. Let's just be honest about it. It's not like if you saw Paul, you're going to go, wow, ooh, I'm really afraid of you. You know, he, Paul wasn't walking around with his gi on with, you know, a black belt with seven stripes on it where he was, you know, a master in some martial art. He, he didn't sling an Uzi underneath his, underneath his tunic. He, he didn't have a bunch of bodyguards. He was not wandering around in, in this particular region of what would have been Greece. As he's writing this, he's probably in Ephesus, but eventually he does go to Corinth, which is in Greece. He's not walking around. He doesn't take an army with him. He is a short, nearly blind, kind of homely guy from all that we know. Church history says the Apostle Paul was kind of, you know, he's one of those guys you're like, "Mm, you know, bro, you might want to get some work done. He needed a nose job, you know, glasses. The whole, he needed to have laser surgery on his eyes. So it wasn't like Paul was intimidating. But he also wasn't weak. He, he was a man like Elijah, just as James 5 says. He says, look, don't let this body fool you. Don't let this body fool you. I may be a man of like passion, but I'm also empowered by the Holy Spirit and you need to be seriously careful. When it came to the provision for his flesh, uh, that principle which he would articulate in Romans 7, he says, look, those things I will to do, I do not do, and those things which I will not to do, those things I do is gonna deliver me from this body of flesh. And he says, praise God that Christ can. So he's walking in the Spirit, but he's still got all the weapons available to him. And so he didn't need to war in the flesh. He could war in the spirit. And as you think about what that is, I want you to realize that you have the same weapons available to you that Paul had available to him. You have your weaknesses. You have your limitations. And some of those things are mental, aren't they? I know they are for me. Sometimes my emotions get in the way. I, I am one of those guys, I, I have a fairly strong emotional set. It's like I, I empathize and sympathize. I can't even watch the Hallmark Channel. You know, I, I, don't, I don't watch the puppy bowl on, you know, when the Super Bowl's going on. It's like, you know, some little dog's not gonna get his bone and I'm gonna be the guy over there, like, you have a bone, he's gonna die, you know, kind of thing. That's me, I, that's just who I am. And I'm not bragging about it, and I'm not ashamed of it. The fact of the matter is, we all have our things, amen? amen? Some of us are stronger in one way, and some stronger in another. Some weaker in one way, and some weaker in another. Some of us are weak in all, and strong in none. And some of us are strong in most, and have very little weaknesses. So let's just say we all got issues, amen? amen. Everybody's got issues. But because we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit... We also are powerful and mighty. And no matter how many issues you have, you still have the power of the living God in you. And so you are not incapable of waging war. You are not defeated automatically because of your emotions. You know, sometimes my emotions are actually my strength, sometimes they're my weakness. But sometimes they're my strength. I, I have an inordinate amount of, of ability sometimes to just empathize with people for a very long period of time. And it's actually a gift. And then there are days when I think, you know, Lord, could I just kill him? You know, sometimes I, I run into those people. And, and I'm not saying that braggadociously, but I have fleshly thoughts that run. It's like, you know what? That guy goes after that kid one more time. It's just like, no. 
I'm, it's been a while since I've practiced martial arts, but I think I still know what to do. I have those moments, you know? But by the same token, that's, what not, that's not what God's called me to do. God has called me to wage war in the spirit. And so let's look, as we close tonight out, at Paul's arsenal, if you will. Because he's got one, and so do you. Now describes here in the, the final three verses the weapons of our warfare. Notice what it says. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly weapons, in other words. But they are mighty in God. In other words, they're God's weapons that he has allowed us to also wield. They're, they're mighty because of him, in him and for him. For the pulling down of strongholds, the casting down of arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself. What was Satan's problem in Isaiah 14? Anybody know? His problem was, he said at his fall, God said about him, Lucifer, Lucifer, son of the morning. I'm going to cast you down because... You have tried to exalt your throne above mine. You have said, I will become like the most high God. In other words, it was a high thing problem. Anytime you're trying to exalt yourself above what God says, what God wants to do, you have the same problem the devil has. It's called pride. It's an ugly thing, amen? It really is. And so the Apostle Paul says, look, these weapons are mighty, casting down the arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against what? The knowledge of God. Where do we normally find the knowledge of God? We find it in the word, don't we? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The knowledge of God is contained in the word of God. And in fact, your Bible says, as Paul writes to Timothy, that the word of God itself was actually authored by God himself, and it is suitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So when you read the word of God, you're actually getting God's word on what he wants you to do and think and be. And so those things that come against that, that's what we're trying to fight against. And to bring those things into captivity of the obedience of Christ, having been ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. In other words, when I do the right thing, God will take care of the, of the whooping if it's needed. And so let's break these things down. Word of God's one of our weapons, amen? Hebrews 4. Quick, powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing, even dividing asunder, soul and spirit. It, it can differentiate between the two and joints and marrow it's the discerner of the thoughts even the intent of the heart of man now you see i might be able to have a discussion with you and kind of figure out what you're thinking and saying but did you know that god's word can actually tell me why you might think those things it actually discerns the intent of your heart and when you take god's word and apply it to that conversation and you use it correctly, it actually helps us divide between our soul and our spirit, between that which is physical and that which is not. It helps us divide those things in such a way that ultimately it gets down to our motivation. God's word helps me see motivation, good or bad. Prayer, also a spiritual weapon. So is fasting. You see, when I take things to God in prayer, when I make my request known to him, the peace of God guards my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus, amen? That's what Paul writes to the church at Philippi in Philippians 4. God starts calling the balls and strikes in my life. He says, look, I want you to know what I want you to know, so I'm gonna tell you by the word, and as you ask me, if we ask, if we seek, if we knock, we will find. It will be opened unto us, Amen? When I talk to God and I talk with God and I ask according to his will, he will not withhold anything that I have asked him that is in accordance with his will. 
If I'm asking properly, he answers according to his will. So if I want to know, I need to talk to him. If I want to wage war, I need to ask God what he wants to do is the inference here. Look, if I want God's help, I need to say, help. But too often we try and fight spiritual war with carnal weapons. So we just say, Lord, if you could just turn your back right now, because I'm actually going to punch this guy out. If you would just walk away for a minute, because I am going to rip their head off with my words. I'm not only not going to be meek or kind, I am going to try and shred the very core of who they are as a human being. You see why I'm saying those things? You see, you can't ask God to do that. You can't ask God, God, can you give me a passage someplace that will confirm that I could just beat this person into oblivion? Because here's the problem. There isn't one. You're not going to get it. So to act in accordance to the word, God's going to tell you, you know, Jeff, let's start with meekness and humility. And then we're going to try gentleness. And here's going to, Jeff, you're not going to like this one. Self-control. Self-control, Jeffrey. And oh, by the way, I want you to speak kind things to them that have said mean things to you. Really? Yeah, really. Because when you do that, it heaps coals on their heads. A soft answer turns away wrath. Amen? Your Bible doesn't say, get them and get them good. There's no get them and get them good verse. There's, when they're down, kick them again. You know, there, there's no verses for those things. And so when you ask God, he's not going to go against what he's already said. People sometimes come to me with the weirdest questions. It's like, no, you don't get a pass on that. If it was wrong at any point in time, morally and ethically, it's still wrong. If it was right, it's still right. God's not going to change his tune and then go, wow, you know, I guess I owe... 4,000, 5,000, 7,000 years of humanity, uh, I, I owe them an explanation because I just changed my mind. No, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word says plainly he changes not. He, he doesn't have two sets of standards. He, he, he doesn't write agreements and then change them. And so when we talk to God in prayer, when we fast or we want to know so much that we're willing to die to ourselves, then we have God's answers. He begins to answer very, very, very clearly in our lives. And of course, most of you know the spiritual weapon uh, that we call our armor. You know, when you're in a battle, now I don't know about you, my, my brother was in law enforcement for almost 40 years. And, you know, I used to ask him, I said, do you ever get tired of wearing your, your body armor? Because, I mean, he'd show up at family functions and he'd still have his body armor on. And I'm like, I'm not that dangerous. <laughs> and he, say, he said, no, I've just gotten so used to having it on that I don't even notice because he had this really cool Kevlar, like, you know, it wasn't all that thick, but it did make him look like he was buff. And so, you know, you, you think of it, that's how a Christian is supposed to view the armor of God. We're supposed to have it on all the time. I'm supposed to have the, 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 this incredible breastplate of righteousness. I'm supposed to wear the helmet of salvation. My feet are always supposed to be shod with peace. I, I am never to be not girded with truth. I'm always supposed to have the sword of the spirit, the word of God. I should always have the shield of faith. You're in Ephesians 6. I shouldn't go around unarmored in that sense. And so Paul's saying, look, if you go out with those things, if my mind is controlled by who I am in Christ, that's the helmet of salvation. If my heart, my emotions are girded because of the righteousness of Christ that I have been clothed with, God clothed me with the righteousness of Christ. So I don't walk around in the flesh going, you know, well, I want the flesh. No, I'm covered in the righteousness of Christ. When I have God's peace, no one can push me back because I'm standing where God wants me to be. And so Paul says, look, wear these things. 
And above all, these things were mighty. They had dunamis power. He uses the term here dunatos, which, is, which means to, to apply to all things. In other words, if you were going to have something, it could be mighty or not mighty. In other words, it's almost like a secret ingredient. It's like if you have the sword of the Spirit, put the mightiness of God with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Take the shield of faith and wield it with the mightiness of God. Take the word of God and and use it with the mightiness of God. He says, these things are mighty in God. That's, That's how we use them. And so as Satan builds his fortresses, as he tries to get us to fall prey to pride and possessions, passion, prejudice, these things that we're so prone to, God says, look, don't let those things fool you. Take the weapons that you have and let's deal with those things. Let's tear down those strongholds. And finally, he says this and we'll close. When when Satan builds up his towers, because Satan will build up towers, amen? Satan will put things in front of you. You kind of have to have... uh, the attitude of the American naval hero, John Paul Jones. He, he's in the midst of this battle. He, he found himself up against the British larger ships, much more well-armed and armored. He said, but we have not yet begun to fight. He says, there's one thing that we can do that nobody can change in us, and that's our inward attitude towards this battle. Oh, you may have bigger ships, but we're better warriors. You you may have a strong tower. You might have a fortress, but we're better warriors. Better warriors win 100% of the time. It's as simple as that. And so Paul ends with this thought. He, he, He lines up these weapons and he says, look, against those deceptive fantasies, God wins. They're high things. They're towers. They're, they're defensive plans. They're schemes, if you will. Against all these things that are listed here in the last couple of verses. Against man's disbelief. Fables. You know, people are going to come to you and say, oh, I don't believe in God. I believe in evolution. I believe in science. But what they really are saying is, I have faith in something else. They're not saying that they're smarter. They're just saying that their faith is placed in a theory. And that theory is inexplicable, ultimately. No one can describe to you the mechanism of chemical evolution. It's an impossibility. It cannot happen. It can't happen. No one can explain to you how the universe at some point in time was a single ball of neutrons, electrons, protons, quasars, and quarks, and it exploded, and the universe got much more complex, infinitely complex, and that takes faith. The difference is, I have faith in the true and the living God. Someone else has faith in a theory that somehow attempts to explain the unexplainable. I will readily tell you the universe is unexplainable at some level. The only question is, what measure of faith and in whom are you going to place that faith? Are you going to place that faith in man or are you going to place that faith in God? Amen? And so pull out your faith weapon. People are going to have their imaginations, deceptive things, or their high things, their towers, their, their defenses and devices, their, their disbelieving fables. They're going to have all those things but you have the true and the living God. And in him, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Amen? So Paul writes there in in Romans chapter eight, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We we simply stand and, and we fight this war with the right kind of weapons, the right way. And when we do, we win. Amen? Would you stand and we'll pray together? Going to have some pastors up front after the service. And 
maybe you need prayer. Maybe there's some type of warfare going on in your life and you just need somebody to pray with you. Um, you you're going to get that opportunity. But don't surrender. Never give up. Never surrender. Amen? Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the power that we have to wage this war. Lord, we, we are walking pieces of flesh, but we do not war according to the flesh. Our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they absolutely are mighty in you. Thank you, Lord. We have the power to be able to pull down those strongholds with the right weapons. And so, Lord, uh, give us victory in these areas of our life. I pray for those that maybe you're struggling. Lord, there's something that's just heavily on their heart, their mind. Would you give them courage and strength, Lord, to pull out that sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to engage in the, in the battle in prayer. Lord, we lift these things to you, the things that uh, challenge us, and, and pray that you'd help us to stand fast. And having done all there is to stand, we, we just say we're going to stand, therefore. Bless us, Lord, to that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.